Well, I'd invite you to take your Bibles with me and let's go to John chapter 20 this morning. John chapter 20. I want to preach to you a message entitled Proofs of the Resurrection. Proofs of the Resurrection. You know, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I think there's something that can be said in this sense that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is either one of the most cruel, vicious, um, I don't, deceitful lies that this world has ever seen, or it is the most fantastic, wonderful news that has ever been given to mankind. It's either one of those two things. See, for us as Christians, the central truth of what we believe, of who we are and why we live the way that we live, is the fact that Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins, rose again from the grave three days later, proving enough for us that he was, in fact, enough of a sacrifice for our sins. See, without the resurrection, I think you understand this morning, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you understand that without the crucifixion or without the resurrection, our faith is empty and meaningless. The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 17. He says, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is, say that word with me, vain. It's vain. If you do not have a resurrected Savior, you have nothing. It is vanity. He says, ye are yet in your sins, meaning you're still living in your sins if Christ is not resurrected. And this is why the resurrection is so important for us, because it is the central theme of our faith. And at the same time, because it is the central theme of our faith as believers, this is the reason that it is the most attacked, it is the most denied, uh, it is the most doubted element from the world outside that are struggling with even if they believe that there's a God. And honestly, it even carries over to those who would be intentionally seeking to silence those that call themselves followers of Jesus. But the thing about our God is, is that though for the last 2,000 plus years since the resurrection, there have been people trying to silence us, we are here today as proof that the resurrection is true and that it continually goes on because of the, the lives, the changed lives, and the, the, just the, the amount of impact that it has had in our world. So this morning what I want to do is I want to take just a few minutes and I want to explore some of the proofs of the resurrection that we see in Scripture. And the reason I want for us to do this is because we need to be reminded as believers about the truth, the fact that Jesus is alive. You know, this week I took an opportunity to just sort of, I always check the news sites um, during uh, Easter time to see if anybody writes any articles about Easter, and it's like usually zero. And, it, and it, I was amazed, even this year, almost nothing is mentioned about Easter at all whatsoever. And of course, that's a, that's a change, probably in the last 20 years or so, certainly. But one of the articles that I did come across uh, that actually they had reposted from 2014 was an article that just asked the question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And they kind of give you all the, you know, the, the Christian arguments. And then at the end, they basically say there's no way to really know for sure. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to remind us of the proofs of the fact that Jesus is alive, that he did raise, rise from the dead. Now, the first proof that I'd like for us to see in John chapter 20 is just very simply the empty tomb. The empty tomb is a proof that Jesus rose from the dead. In John 20, verse 1, it says, In the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. So here it is. It's Sunday morning. It's been three days now since Jesus uh, had been buried and died on the cross. And here we see Mary coming to the tomb, the sepulcher, and she sees that the stone was rolled away from the front. 
Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, the one who's writing this book, and saith unto them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher. She doesn't say who, she doesn't say uh, who it might be, she just says they have taken him away. And we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. And so they both uh, ran both together. The other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. Now, I can't be Easter without mentioning the fact that John just had to drop it in there that he was a faster runner than Peter. Did you see that there? They're headed to the sepulcher, and I just want you to know that I beat Peter. You know, he was carrying a little extra weight, you know, from Passover, and so I was able to pass him and make it there to the sepulcher. And he, verse 5, so that's John, he outrun Peter, he came first, he stooped down and he looked in, and he saw the linen clothes, the burial clothes lying, yet he went not in, so he saw it. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, he mentions it again, he was behind me, and, and he though went into, I'm sorry, um, then cometh Simon Peter following him and he went into the sepulcher. So this is totally Peter's character, right? He just barges right in, he doesn't even stop, he just goes right in. And it says here, and he seeth the linen clothes lie as well. And the napkin, which was about his head, not lying, verse 7, with the linen cloths, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, he mentions it again, <laughs> man, this guy really had something about his speed, he was really concerned, and he saw, look at this, and believed. He came in, he saw, and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again in, unto their own home. So we saw on Friday evening during our Good Friday service that Jesus, of course, had been crucified on the cross he had been murdered and killed by a series of professional executioners. Roman guards, especially the ones that were in control of making sure that the prisoners who were placed on a cross as punishment, making sure that they did in fact die uh, for, their, uh, for their crimes, these guys were professionals, they knew, and they had declared that Jesus was dead. In fact, they believed that he was dead already, but just to make sure, they had taken a spear and they had shoved it into his side, and it says that blood and water came out. So they recognized that he was dead, and he had been taken down and placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy businessman who had offered up his tomb as a burial place for Jesus, and he had been wrapped as was the custom of the day. They would have wrapped him very tightly with different grave clothes. They would have uh, anointed his body with a lot of different ointments and different spices. They say estimate, typically they would use up to 100 pounds of different types of spices and ointments that would be used in preparing a body for burial. And he would have been laid on a ledge, a stone ledge, in that tomb. And here we see the detail that a stone was rolled in front of it. This, of course, was to keep grave robbers outside. It would have been uh, what we believe from just from historical findings, that it would have been something around two tons in weight. It would have taken four to five men to roll the stone and to put it in front of the tomb so that no one could get into it on their own. And here we also understand from uh, the, uh, Matthew chapter 27, it tells us that in addition to the fact that he was buried and this stone was put in front of the tomb, that a, 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 a group of Roman soldiers were placed there as well to guard it because uh, the Jews had said, oh, someone might try to steal the body. And so uh, they had guards that were there. And also on top of that, they sealed the tomb with a Roman seal. It would have been a wax seal that would have been all around it. And if anybody broke that seal, you yourself then would have been in trouble with the Roman law. So we have all of these elements here. We have the soldiers, we have the tomb, we have the fact that he was wrapped tightly, he was placed in here. They had declared him as dead, these Roman soldiers, these human fighting machines that were trained in death. They knew death and they had placed him in there. But despite all of those precautions, the tomb, uh, the stone, the soldiers, 
the seal, that first Easter morning, that tomb was empty and that stone was rolled away. Despite all of those attempts, he was gone. When Peter and John arrived, the only thing that they saw, as we read there, was the blood-stained burial clothes folded on the ledge where his body would have been. Now, the empty tomb is a testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And like I mentioned earlier, critics have always tried to uh, pretend as if it's not real or come up with other reasons as to what could have happened. One of the reasons that people say, they say that the disciples stole the body. Maybe you've heard that before. Oh, the disciples must have figured out a way to steal the body. And, and at that point, what I want to do is I want to remind you of the fact uh, that these guys were cowards. Do you remember that? <laughs> these guys were cowards. Do you know where they were when he was being crucified? They were hiding out. Later on, we'll read that they were hiding in a room together for fear. And so we're to supposedly believe that these guys who were scared and at this point scattered, Peter had denied Jesus, all of this chaos had been happening, that somehow they figured out a way to band together, take out these Roman soldiers, open the tomb, get Jesus out in the middle of the night, and somehow figured this out, that they were able to to, to do this. I don't know. To me, it really doesn't seem plausible because, as we will see, these men also created then, let's say they did it, created this myth that they all ultimately gave their lives for. Just doesn't really seem plausible. Another argument against this and the empty tomb is that people believe that other religious leaders somehow disposed of the body. Remember how Mary said that? She says, they've taken him away. We don't know where he is. There was a, a thought that maybe these religious leaders took Jesus and they hid him somewhere uh, for some reason. But again, I would ask, why would they do that? Their goal was to prove that Jesus was not the Messiah, that he was not the Son of God. So wouldn't they have put his dead body on, a, you know, on, on some sort of stretcher and paraded him through Jerusalem, and they would have ended Christianity right there? But they didn't do that. No matter what the... And I'll tell you what, those Roman soldiers, I'm sure, did a thorough investigation trying to find out what happened. But yet to this day, there is no body of Jesus Christ. And our faith rises and falls on the empty tomb. It is that silent and it is that infallible witness that Jesus is not here. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. And critics have tried to explain it away. But he is not there. He is risen. You know, leaders from every other religion that we know in this world today have died and we know where their bodies are. Muhammad, of course, we know is buried in Medina in Saudi Arabia. The Buddha is buried, he was cremated and placed in temples all around the world. Confucius is buried in China with 100,000 of his descendants. Ron Hubbard, he's the founder of Scientology. He, is, uh, he was uh, cremated and scattered in the Pacific Ocean. Joseph Smith, who founded the Mormon church, he was buried in Nauvoo, Illinois, and we know where they are, but that's not the case with Jesus. As he claimed in Luke chapter 2 that he would rise from the dead the third day, and that's exactly what he did. And what I want us to understand is that the empty tomb validates that claim that he is in fact risen. Now for us, we would say, oh yeah, totally. And we're Christians, you know, if you're a Christian, you're like, yeah, totally, that, that validates it. But you know what's interesting is that the disciples themselves didn't even believe just the empty tomb. They themselves needed more evidence to believe that Jesus truly was risen from the dead. And so that's what brings us to our second point is that multiple eyewitnesses were a part of this story. So not only is the empty tomb proof of us as a resurrection, but also multiple eyewitnesses. As I mentioned, they didn't even really believe, and later on, though, they did not say that we found an empty tomb. The reason they were able to give proof for the resurrected Christ is that they would say later on, the disciples said, in fact, we have seen Jesus alive. Now, here's an amazing thing. 
One of the most outstanding proofs that Jesus was risen from the dead is that there are some 515 witnesses on 12 different occasions that prove to us and give us these eyewitness accounts that Jesus is risen from the dead. In Acts chapter 1 and verse number 3, uh, he said that to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. See, Jesus gave to us unquestionable proof that he was risen from the dead by revealing himself to others. Remember, he made an appearance to a woman in a cemetery. Later that day, he walked through a closed door and just scared those disciples, I mean, absolutely out of their minds. He walked through the door and just appeared to them. Uh, later on, he walked side by side with two men as they made their way down the road to Emmaus. He believed to believe, uh, appeared to believers and doubters, to uh, tough-minded people, to people who are against it, and he still over and over and over again revealed himself. There were several people who saw him on more than one occasion, some alone, sometimes in large groups, sometimes it was at night, sometimes during the day. My point is is that Jesus revealed himself over and over and over again in those 40 days following his resurrection before he ultimately went back up to heaven. The Apostle Paul, some 30 years later when he was writing to a group of new Christians, he said this to them. He says, for I delivered unto you first of all that which I received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Look at verse 4. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain until this present, but some are fallen asleep. That means that some are still alive while I'm writing this. The ones that were part of that 500, others have died, but there are still some that are still alive when he wrote this. After that, he says... He was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one, of one born out of due time. When I was 13 years old, uh, my brother and I were involved in a head-on car accident in Richmond. He had picked me up from a basketball practice, and, uh, and as my brother typically would do, he was driving recklessly. No, I don't know. I'm just, he was driving ag- aggressively. Maybe that's the word. I don't know. Anyway. He was driving, and uh, either way, and we, we turned, and we had this, like, major accident, like, head-on collision. And, uh, and, and when the police got there and the ambulance and all of these, you know, of course, they started asking questions, and they said, and one of the questions they asked were, are there any witnesses at all? Did anybody see what happened? And typical Vancouver fashion, nobody stuck, stuck around, you know? Everybody's like, oh, that was bad, and they drove off. <laughs> you know, that's typically how it goes. And so because of that, when it came time to deal with the insurance and we had to go in and like state our case and, and they were trying to figure out exactly what happened. Of course, our story was one thing. The guy who hit us, the, his story was another thing. And then because there were no witnesses at all whatsoever, they gave each of us 50-50, you know, not me, I wasn't driving, but 50% fault to my brother, 50% uh, towards the other guy. And they just sort of split it down the middle. Maybe you've been in an experience like that. Now, imagine if we had just had one eyewitness to that crash. What if there's just one person who had been standing there on the side of the road and watched the whole thing happen, and they had said, you know what, uh, Paul, uh, my brother's name is Peter, you know, Peter, he was in the right, like he was turning, the other guy was speeding, this is our story, he was speeding, he was in the far lane, and he ran a red light and hit us while we turned. And if they corroborated that evidence, you know what, that would stand up pretty strong with ICBC, although ICBC sometimes, you never know what they're going to do, right? <laughs> but uh, they, if we just had one, one witness that had just said, hey, you know what, this is what happened, it would have certainly, maybe we would have only got, uh, you know, 25% of the fault. I don't know. Now, imagine if there had been three people there who had seen the accident, and they all corroborated our story. What if there had been 12 people there? 
who all said, you know what, this is exactly what happened. I don't think ICBC would have given us 50% of the fall, do you? I think they, I, to this day, I believe we were okay, but I think you can get, you can figure that out, right? I think they would have given us, you know, all. Now imagine if there, for some reason, there was some sort of protest or parade that day at Granville and Number Two Road in Richmond. And let's say that 515 people were there and they were protesting something and that accident happened right in front of them and all 500 people saw it. Whoa. And we were able to say, hey, we have 500 witnesses. And so they brought them into ICBC, and every one of those witnesses got 15 minutes to tell their story. And so from Monday uh, morning until Monday night, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday, 129 hours of testimony, and every single one of those people said, you know what, Peter, uh, he was doing the right thing, this guy was in the wrong. I don't know that ICBC would still have issued us 50% of the fault, do you? I don't know of any case that has 500 witnesses, maybe, maybe there is, I don't know. But imagine 515 people. I think ICBC, with all of their flaws, and if you work there, I'm really sorry. Uh, but ICBC, with all of their flaws, I don't believe that they would have still said, ah, we don't really know what happened. We're going to give you and you. No, no, no. So listen, this is the cross, or this is the resurrection here. This is the resurrection. Put it into perspective. This is how strong the case is for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that 500 different individuals were willing to testify that had seen Jesus uh, face to face. When the New Testament church was launched, these people were still around. They could still give testimony as to what could happen. Think about it. In the church, there were people that could say, I saw Jesus. I saw him. Peter, we know, was one of those eyewitnesses, and he saw the resurrected Lord. And one day when he preached his first, his first sermon in the book of Acts, he said this. He was talking about the details surrounding his death. But he said this, this Jesus hath God raised up whereof we are all witnesses. It's so interesting to me that Peter preached this message in Jerusalem where probably people were in the crowd that had actually seen Jesus resurrected from the dead, people who could verify that fact. When he said it, people could verify it. I love it how sometimes I'll tell a story and then you'll verify it on Google and you'll tell me later and say, Pastor, I just want you to know you were right. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> and that's why I make sure my stories are true. Uh, that's, a, that's an important thing. But imagine there was those in the crowd that when Peter said, yes, God raised him from the dead, that there were some in the crowd who said, yeah, that's right. I saw him myself. And it's amazing to think. Later on, Peter wrote in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Proofs of the resurrection are the empty tomb and the eyewitnesses. But lastly, this morning, I want you to also notice that another proof of the resurrection is in the changed lives that it made. The changed lives that it made. The truth is this today, those who met the resurrected Jesus had their lives completely transformed. They were completely changed because of the resurrection. See, something happened that was so unique with those original 12 disciples that were, like I said, they were in the room, they were hiding, they were scared, they were fearful. But after Jesus rose from the dead, they, were, they changed from being full of fear to now being full of faith and honestly, radically then transformed the world. In John chapter 20, later on in verse 19, it says, uh, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. They were scared. Then came Jesus and stood in the midst, in the middle of them, and he said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had said, he showed them his hands and his side, the scars from the crucifixion. It says, Then were the disciples what? glad, glad. 
They went from fear. They went from trembling, from hiding, to now being glad when they saw the Lord. Now, sometimes I like to put myself in the position of Jesus in the Bible. I don't recommend it because I would always choose something different than what he would do, you know? But why didn't Jesus just appear and be like, you bunch of babies, right? What are you doing hiding out in here? What is your problem? Look, you know, he didn't do that, though. You notice that? He didn't come in here and be like, Peter, you are so lame. I left you in charge, and here you guys all are huddling together like, shh, you know, doors are locked. Don't tell anybody we're in here. I left you in charge. No, no, what does Jesus do? He comes to them. He sees their fear, and he says, listen, peace be unto you. You don't have to fear. I'm alive. I'm the resurrected Savior. And that overwhelming peace that he gave to them cut through their guilt, their feelings of failure. It cut through their fear, and then it was replaced with joy. Peter, the great coward, was changed into a man who became the pillars of the new church. He was the one who first took the gospel to the Gentiles. We read about that when we studied the book of Acts together. And these ordinary men were transformed from frightened wimps into some of the most effective, one of the most, probably the most effective missionary organization the world has ever seen. Because of them, the gospel went to the entire known world. And we're standing here today in North America preaching about this because of what God did in those original 12 men. Every single one of them had gone from doubt to determination, from confusion to conviction, from fear to faith. And if you still need proof that their lives were changed, I just want to share with you how these disciples ended their lives. Matthew was killed in Ethiopia. It was Mark who was dragged through the streets until he was dead. Peter, uh, Simeon, Andrew, and Philip all were crucified. James was beheaded. Bartholomew, he was flayed alive. Uh, Thomas, he was pierced with lances. Uh, James the less, he was thrown down from the roof of the temple and then stoned to death. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Uh, Paul later was boiled in oil and then beheaded, beheaded. And John, of course, we know, was exiled to the island of Patmos off the coast of Turkey. Now listen, does this sound like a group of men who were just making up a story? Does this sound like a group of guys who were all in on a funny joke? Like, oh, I can't believe they believe this. You know, this is, that's some episode of punk, right? This is, I mean, this was their lives. And these men and many more and countless thousands more since that time have given up their lives for this truth. Because I want to tell you, the resurrection is true. The resurrection is real. And it completely transformed their lives. The only thing that could have changed their lives so dramatically was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did you realize that every single one of these men could have lived a peaceful life if they had just simply said, he's dead. He's dead. It wasn't real. We made it up. We hoped, we thought that maybe he was the Messiah. And listen, we live, when he was around, we lived like he was the Messiah, but hey, you know what? He's not. He's dead. And they could have lived a peaceful life, but yet what do we see? These men giving their lives, sacrificing their lives because it is true. It is true, and that is the result, the changed life that we see that comes as a result of the the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their combined testimony then has changed lives from that point on. And for generation after generation, we see people from every race and tribe and language and nationality in the world. Regardless of the intellectual or social backgrounds, we see people united all around their conviction of Jesus Christ. Today, all across our city, there are people from all around the world that are gathered today because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it has changed their lives as well. I know we could take a few minutes, and I could just say, hey, and I could point to many of you and say, why don't you tell me 
just a little bit about how the resurrection has transformed your life. And it would be awesome to hear all of your stories. And I'm so thankful to know so many of your stories so intimately and how you were at one place in your life and now you're here and how God has just done this amazing work in your life. What a blessing that is. What a testimony that is. And so I want us to know is that, listen, it's not just these ancient people that were changed. They started and they continued what God desired for them to do. And now here we are today, lives continually being changed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus has changed my life. He's changed my life. And it's why I do what I do because of the resurrection. It motivates me to live for him today. And I want you to know, listen, church family, that same power, that same resurrection power is still working and is still available to us today, just as much today as it was that first Easter morning all of those years ago. The resurrected Jesus changes everything. These are some proofs of the resurrection. But I know right now some of you might be thinking, well, what difference does this make in my life? Great. (laughs) He's resurrected. Okay, you gave me some proofs from from a book. What difference can this make for me? I want to share just a couple of thoughts really quickly. First of all, the resurrection answers questions that we all have. It answers questions that we all have. Questions like the question simply of doubt. I know that there might be some of you that still struggle with doubt. Is this true? Is is God even real? How can I know that it's true? Like Thomas, you are like him. He says, unless I can touch the resurrected Christ, I will not believe. And you're still struggling with those areas of doubt. I want you to know that the evidence for the resurrection can displace and can remove that doubt. If you would just believe by faith, say, listen, this, this is true. I believe it. The resurrection can also answer the question of loneliness. Man, so many people around our world struggle with loneliness. Does anybody care about me at all? Am I just this, I'm just this little, you know, organism wandering around this this globe that's hurtling through space? Does anybody really care? Listen, Jesus does care about you. He loves you. That's why he died on the cross, and that's why he rose again to prove to us that you're not alone, that you have a God who loves you and cares about you, and so much so that he wants to have a relationship with you. God desires to intimately know us and to commune with his people. We are his creation, and he wants to know us. The other question that the resurrection answers is the question of weakness, the question of weakness. How can I find the power to change? You know, that's a big thing. So many people today, they struggle with addictions and and troubles and thought processes, and we're like, how can I ever change? Listen, the resurrection, the fact that God has power over death can also help you to make the changes that you need to make in in your life as well. He can transform Salvation radically transforms you, and it, just like it changed that group of weakened people, an encounter with God can give you the strength and confidence like you've never had before. It also answers the question of guilt. How do I get rid of the guilt of my sin? How do I get rid of this guilt that, uh, for the things that I have done? I want to tell you today that the resurrection is proof that you are not guilty. Here's what I mean by that. Yes, you, may, you are sin. We're all sinners. But because of the resurrection, that sin has been forgiven. That sin has been forgiven. John 3 and verse 16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, that means anybody, whosoever believeth on him should not perish. That's eternal perishment following this physical life. You shall not perish, but have everlasting life. In Romans 6, it says that the wages of sin is death, 
But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, what we earn for our sin, we are born sinners. You know, we have four boys. I never had to teach any of them how to sin. I never had to sit them down and say, hey, I just want you to know, this is how you lie. (laughs) Here, okay, wait, here. This is how you disobey your mom. All right, go over there and do that. (laughs) No, it is natural in us, isn't it? And you parents, you understand that. You're like, who is this kid, right? They're a sinner. We're born sinners. It's it's a, a result of the fall of man. God created us perfect, but man rebelled, and this is what we get. But even though we sin in that way, and even though we are sinners, it says here in this verse, this is what I love, the wages of what we have earned for that is death. That's not only physical death on this earth, but that's eternal death and separation from God. So that's what we've earned. But, and this is what I love about this verse, but the gift of God is eternal life. How do we get this eternal life? It is through Jesus Christ. Well, why is it through Jesus Christ? What makes Jesus Christ so special? Because he is the resurrected Savior. If he was just some man, listen, I can never die for your sins and you cannot die for my sins. By the way, I don't love you that much. I love you, but I don't love you that much. But that's the amazing thing about our God. He loved us so much that he was willing to send Jesus to this earth to live among men for 33 years and then ultimately give up his life, the perfect one, the innocent, dying for the guilty, in order that we could be made righteousness of God in him and through him. See, that's the amazement of the the resurrection here. And that guilt that you carry because of your sin, that emptiness that is inside your heart that you're like, how do I feel this? Like, what is, why do I feel like there's something missing in my life? What you're missing is forgiveness of God. You're, you're missing the gift of God through Jesus Christ. And that's why he gives it to us. And that's why the resurrection answers the question of guilt, but it also answers the question of death. What happens when I die? Well, because of what Jesus did, because of his victory over death, it is now understandable for us that there is life after the grave. The Bible says that when we are absent from the body, we can be present with the Lord. And every person on this planet has a living soul that is going to live forever somewhere. That's what you have. That's that internal being. You are not a random collection of cells. You are not. Just think for a moment about the intricacies of your body and how you're created. Study the eye and how it works. Listen, God created you with a purpose and a reason, and that was to have a relationship with him. And when this body dies, as amazing as it is, we can have a perfect body and eternal life with God in heaven. And that comes through understanding. That's why the resurrection answers this question of death, is that because Jesus is alive, death will not have the final word in your life. Because he is alive, we have something to look forward to. In verse number eight, I want us to just look at verse number eight real quickly. If you've got your Bible there in John 20, I don't have it on the screen, but in verse number eight, I just want to highlight one thought real quickly here as we close. Remember I talked about how Peter and John, they ran into the tomb? Look at verse eight again. It says, then went in also that other disciple, which came first, and notice what it says here, he saw and believed. He saw and he believed. Now here's what's so cool about this verse. The word that is used here for saw and believed is not the idea of seeing something at a distance, but it's the idea of seeing something up close. And that's what we like about Peter, right? He ran right into the tomb. And he saw up close and personal, he saw the reality of the resurrection. To see something up close like this, in in the original languages, it actually means to have a light 
an inner light that leads to a conclusion. We would say it today, the lights came on. <laughs> light bulb, right? You know, it happened. He, it, it finally happened for him. So the question I have for us is that, listen, the resurrection has the ability to awaken in us and illuminate the truth that Jesus truly is who he said he was. So what I want to ask us this morning is this, is the light coming on for you? Has the light come on for you? Maybe you're a Christian here today and you can remember the day that you were like, you know what? Jesus is who he says he is. I remember the day in my life, I was a young child when the light came on for me. And I'm so thankful to grow up in a Christian home and to be exposed to the gospel at an early age. For others of you, you are in your 60s, you are in your 30s, you are in your 20s, you are in your 40s. Some of you were teenagers, young children, when the light came on. And the light that came on is when you finally understood and believed that Jesus died for your sins and that he paid the penalty. And you don't have to try to pay that penalty any longer. See, so many people live trying to pay for their own sins. And they think that they're going to get to heaven and God's just going to be like, oh, you did a lot of good things. Ah, You did a lot of bad things too. All right, let's put it on a scale. Let's figure out how it works. That's not how it works. Jesus says it's not by works of righteousness that you have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. So it doesn't matter what you do. Our, our righteousness is as filthy rags, the scripture says. So the good things that you try to do in God's eyes are just because you're, you're a sinner already and you're trying to do these good things. The only thing that's going to matter when you arrive and you, and you leave this earth, the only thing that's going to matter is whether or not you're counting on what Jesus did for you and you've put your faith in him. And you stand before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven? You say, well, because because of the cross, because of what Jesus did for me. That's the only way. That's the only way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by him. That's the only way. So I'm asking you today, would you put your faith and your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If you've never done that, today could be the day to do that. In a moment... We'll, we'll dismiss from here and we'll all kind of head out in there and we'll have coffee and have a time to just sort of spend some time together. I would love it if you'd come and you'd talk to me uh, or to Christian or to my wife or to a- anyone, really, and just say, hey, what Pastor was talking about, I think I need to be saved. I- I've never made that decision. I've never trusted in Christ. I've been trying to live life on my own. I've been trying to do it on my own. I've been trying to make changes on my own. I've been trying to be a good person and it's exhausting to me. It's exhausting. And I still feel like with all the things that I have and all the things I've accomplished, I still feel like there's something missing in my life. Listen, it's Jesus. And, and, and I ask you, I beg you to trust him today. Would you trust him as your Lord and Savior? Jesus says that whoever comes to me, I will not cast you out. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you're from, who you are. He says, would you come to me? And the reason that I can stand here this morning and say to you that Jesus is the way is because of the resurrection, because of the resurrection. And you know what, for you Christians that are maybe astray right now, maybe, maybe you have been trying to go your own way, you're saved, you've trusted Christ, but you've just been just kind of just living however you want to live, and you've just been trying to figure things out. You haven't even been really focused on the Lord. Your relationship with God is just sort of an afterthought. Listen, because of the resurrection, you can return to him. You can get right with God. You can restore that relationship. That's what I love about our God. He's never like, all right, enough. <laughs> he doesn't turn his back on us. He's always there and he's saying, return to me, return to me, like the, the father to the prodigal son. 
And so maybe that's you today. Maybe because of the resurrection, you need to come back to God and get right with him and restore that relationship. Whatever it is, I hope that the lights kind of come on for you today. And I hope that the proofs of the resurrection will help you as you move forward in your relationship with Christ.